Well, good morning. It's great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at uh, Resurrection OC. And uh, we are this morning continuing our series through the book of Mark this summer called The Real Jesus. And so I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible on the ground uh, near you. And you can find uh, Mark chapter 10 there on page 846. Uh, With that, would you stand with me as we read um, Mark chapter 10, and we are going to start reading at verse 32. Let's give our attention to God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, would you meet with us now as we uh, hear these uh, stunning, startling words of Jesus? Would we hear them with uh, fresh ears? By the power of your Spirit, would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated, please. What does greatness look like? What does it look like to be to be great in our world? Um, Does being successful make you great? Does being a celebrity make you great? Does being, uh, you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky used to say, or used to be called, you know, we used to call Wayne Gretzky the great one, right? Um, I haven't heard the name Wayne Gretzky in a while. (laughs) Uh, um, Is Tiger Woods great? Is, Is LeBron James great? Um, <laughs> whoa. Um, <laughs> you know, Muhammad Ali, 
uh, the boxer, used to say, uh, I am the greatest. And uh, the story goes, I don't know if it's a legend or not, but the story goes that Muhammad Ali was once on an airplane and uh, refused to buckle his seatbelt. And the flight attendant said, sir, you have to, you have to wear that seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> uh, is that what greatness looks like? Does being wealthy make you great? Um, does being the president make you great? You know, I want to suggest that the greatest people, the people whose names that we never know. Um, have you ever heard of Pastor Lee Jong-Rak. I'm sure, I'm fairly confident nobody in this room has ever seen that name before. He's a pastor in South Korea. And um, because of the prevalence in that culture of abandoning unwanted, undesirable children or babies, um, Pastor Lee Jong-Rak created a baby box on the side of his house. And almost every single night, uh, he or his wife hear an alarm, and, meaning that a child has been left in this box, and they welcome the children into their home. And I don't know exactly how they manage it at this point, because since 2009, they have received six, over 630 babies. Uh, isn't that great? That's what greatness looks like. None of us would ever uh, know who he is. And yet that's what greatness looks like. You know, we long for greatness, don't we? There's something in us that longs to be, to be seen, to be recognized, to be told. Uh, I mean, my kids, you know, come and they say, Dad, look what I did. And they're so eager to say, to hear their father say, you did a good job. I'm proud of you. There's something in us that longs for greatness. And that's a good thing, isn't it? And yet we live in a broken world and so much of what uh, passes for greatness in our world is sort of shamelessness. Uh, <laughs> I was struck by how messed up our world is. Last fall, I was um, coaching one of my kids' soccer teams, and um, my whole philosophy on coaching is that um, passing is the best way to get the ball down the field, and um, dribbling is not going to you know, do very much for you. And we had a kid on our team who I was trying to like, he, he just did not believe that dribbling was not the best way. Um, and, uh, and so I said to him one day uh, in a game, I said, you know, you might be able to dribble past one player, two players, but there's no way you're going to dribble around the entire team. You're going to have to pass the ball. And he said to me, well, Messi can dribble around the whole team. And, uh, you know, what, of course, I said back to him, guess what, kid? <laughs> You're not messy. <laughs> um, but, you know, the tragedy of that is not what he said, I think. The tragedy is that he has grown up in an environment where that is a thing that children say, uh, where, where a child would s compare himself to one of the greatest living soccer players. Um, we long for greatness, and that is a good thing. It is right for us to long for greatness. And yet so often on our longing, our desires get twisted. And this is such an important passage because we are really bad at predicting what will make us happy in life. 
we are really bad. Happiness and greatness are not the same thing, but so often we are driven by what we think will make us happy. And happiness comes and goes, but greatness and joy are things that last and they are counterintuitive. And so I want to invite you to look with me a little more closely at this passage um, where I want you to see, first of all, what greatness really is. In this passage, we read that Jesus is leading his disciples up to Jerusalem. And now this is the third time Jesus has said to his disciples, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and I am going to be killed. And um, he's told them for the third time now that he's going to die. And his disciples are apparently like tone deaf or something because he's just said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And James and John come to him and their response is, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And Jesus doesn't turn around and go, did you hear what I just said? Um, But graciously, he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And uh, they say to him, um, Jesus, we want to sit one at your right hand and one at your left when you come into glory. And um, what, what are they asking for? They believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. They believe that Jesus is the king who has finally come to make everything right in the world. And they've heard, we're going up to Jerusalem, and they're thinking, okay, now's the moment. We might have to fight for like a day or something, and then Jesus is going to be the king, and maybe we can just get in on the ground floor. And it's interesting because you see the other ten disciples, they're really ticked at these two guys. They're like, dang it, they asked before we did. Um, And what are they doing? They're doing what I think we all do. Um, They can only imagine that greatness will come in, uh, in terms of political success. And so they're trying to kind of get their, you know, call dibs early because they want to slide into greatness without uh, suffering. They want greatness to come without cost, without, I mean, maybe like, okay, if there's going to be a fight, Jesus will fight. That's, you know, when Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They're like, yeah, we can fight for a little bit, but then we want the glory. We want to be, we want to be great. We long for greatness just like they do, but just like them, we kind of hope we can sort of slide sideways into it. Um... I think that this is what we experience when I think we've all had this moment, this hope that maybe one day a coach or a teacher or a boss will sort of see something that we've done and recognize the latent genius in our work and kind of call it out and we'll be discovered as, wow, like, and that's, we'll like slide into greatness and that's when we'll kind of go to, go to work that our genius will be discovered, our greatness will be discovered easily. And Jesus takes all of this and turns our longing to be great upside down because he says this in verse 42. He says, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that um, on the one hand, the way that the world thinks about greatness, it looks like holding it over somebody else's head. Um, 
what he's saying is that we tend to think of greatness as coming at the expense of someone else. Uh, my kids were um, practicing um, like victory dances <laughs> yesterday. And uh, oh, not all of them, apparently, I'm hearing. And uh, I was asked by one, which will be unidentified, Dad, like, what does your victory dance look like when you score a goal in soccer? <laughs> Say, like, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> like, if you're going to celebrate, at least let it be authentic, right? We're not going to prepare to gloat ahead of time. Um, because that's, that's what Jesus is saying is, is true of the, you know, the Gentiles, the, the, the ungodly. It's um, greatness that comes at the expense of somebody else. It's more gloating than greatness. But Jesus points to a way towards greatness that doesn't come at someone else's expense because true greatness, he says, is seen in humility and in service. And that's why, that's why the truly great people in the world are people whose names you've never heard um, because they don't hire publicists. Um, and they don't amass followings. They just sort of quietly go about their lives humbly serving others. Greatness is not saying, oh, come on, bring it on, you know, yes, everybody, I'm amazing, right? Um, greatness is, is seen in humility and in service. I uh, heard the story of the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, uh, yeah, Fortune 500 company CEO, who wakes up early, early Saturday morning every week, and uh, this man's a Christian, and he goes to his church and he vacuums the building. And uh, somebody said to him, you know, like, you could probably have any job you want in this church. Why vacuum? And he said, you know, all week long, people tell me how great I am. This is a very powerful man. So people suck up to me all day long. <laughs> and uh, it is good for me to be reminded of who I am, that I'm not great, and that Jesus is really the great one. There was a uh, NBA playoff game in 1994. The Chicago Bulls were playing their first season after Michael Jordan had retired to go play baseball. And, um, and so they're trying to sort of establish themselves as a team without Michael Jordan. And in the playoff game, they're playing the Knicks. And <clears throat> they've already lost the first two games to the Knicks. And they're in the third game. And uh, they, they had been up by 20 points at the beginning of the fourth quarter, and the Knicks have come back, and the score is tied at 102 with 1.8 seconds left in the game. And uh, the Bulls have the ball. They call a timeout, and Coach Phil Jackson kind of, you know, plans the play. And um, he's going to have Scottie Pippen, the superstar Scottie Pippen, uh, he's going to inbound the ball at half court. He's going to uh, toss the ball to Tony, how do you say, Tony Kukoc? There we go. He's going to inbound. Tony Kukoc is going is to score a point. They're going to, you know, basket. They're going to win. It's going to be amazing, right? And uh, Scotty Pippen, the superstar, hears that his role in this game when he plays to throw the ball in. And he has had it. And he uh, whispers, or doesn't whisper, some choice words to the coach and sits down on the end of the bench. So the Bulls have to then call another timeout. And um, 
the coach has words with Scotty um, Pippen, and uh, it's not going to happen. And so coach subs Pete Myers in for Pippen. Myers tosses the ball into Kukoc. Kukoc sinks the basket, and the Bulls win uh, at the buzzer. <laughs> okay, is that what a super? Is that what greatness looks like? Hey, I'm only in this if if I get the glory here. I'm not going to be the team player that tosses the ball in. I want the glory. Is that what greatness really looks like? We live in a world that says great people are those who are served by others. Great people are those that are in the spotlight. And Jesus shows us that those who are truly great are the people who give up their privileges and their desires, their rights, their comforts to serve other people. I came across a great quote this week. Um, Steve, uh, Stephen Pressfield is, a, is an author who uh, writes historical fiction. And um, in one of his books, he's writing about King Leonidas, the, the, the king of Sparta in ancient Greece, like 600 years before Christ. And um, he says this. He says, I will tell his majesty what a king is. A king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry nor sleep when they stand at a wall uh, when they stand at watch upon the wall. A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and the pain he endures for their sake. That which comprises the harshest burden, a king lists lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require service of those he leads, but provides it to them. He serves them, not they him. And the question for us then is this, wouldn't you love to follow a king like that? Or wouldn't you love to work for a boss like that? (laughs) Or wouldn't you love to have a pastor (laughs) like that? Because we live in a world that is dying for servant leadership. We live in a world that is longing for true greatness. We are longing for someone, anyone, to follow. Someone who is truly great. But what do we get instead? We get a culture that tells us to indulge ourselves. You know, okay, like you deserve it. Just, just you know, indulge a little bit. Um... We think the great people are those who have earned the right to indulge. I have to confess that that attitude almost ruined our family vacation this year, this summer, because Dad thought the point of vacation was for him to rest. And um, have you been on vacation with four children? (laughs) If uh, Dad thinks that the point of vacation is to sleep in, and have lots of peace and quiet. Um, by day four, five, six of the vacation, Dad is livid and making everybody miserable. Um, we are longing for greatness. We live in a world where important people gloat, but great people are those who serve others. <clears throat> okay, so here's the question. 
Like, that, that sounds great. It's inspiring. Like, we would love to follow somebody like that. But the question then is this. How do I get that behavior to come out of me? Uh, if, if greatness is not indulging but humbly serving, then how do I actually become a person who does that? I mean, it's great to sit here and listen to the inspirational whatever, but how do I do that? Um, Well, you have to see what Jesus says here. Um, Because he says this in, in verse 43 and following. He says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, I just want you to focus on one word, the word ransom. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. What does that imply? It implies that Jesus had the right to be served, right? Um, And yet he came, he says, not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, what is a ransom? I mean, we, we really only think of, the, of a ransom in terms of um, like somebody being kidnapped. Um, a ransom is a payment that is made to free somebody who has been taken captive. Uh, in Jesus' time, the word ransom was um, used in reference to slaves. A slave could be, could be ransomed, could be bought out of slavery if somebody was willing to to pay the price, uh, right? To ransom them. Um, and so what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that there is a group of people who have been kidnapped or taken prisoner or enslaved, and he came to pay their ransom. And I wonder if, if you are one of those people who um, is a slave that Jesus has come to ransom See, the problem, I think, with Christianity in our time, at least as it, as it has come to us in, in South Orange County, is that like, we are pretty good people. Uh, we are pretty okay. We are, we are pretty comfortable. You know, we don't, we don't have uh, any major problems in life. And so we think that becoming a Christian means coming to God and saying, like, Okay, God, I give up. Like, I guess I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. Nobody's perfect. I need your help. And um, because that's how we come to God. You know, the word gospel means good news. But if we come to God saying, God, like, I could use a little bit of help, the gospel never really stuns us. It never really sounds like, wow, that is really good news. It kind of feels like okay-ish news. The gospel is okay-ish news because we're pretty good people. Um, I know of a pastor. He got a job at a really big church. And after he'd been there for about a year or two, he, uh, he called up a friend and said, nobody ever becomes a Christian in my church. You know, he's, he's, at, he's pastoring this huge church. So kind of, you know, like any pastor would love this job. And he goes, nobody ever becomes a Christian at my church. My church is full of people who are in the club. And he says, we're, we're affluent, we're comfortable, we're healthy. Nobody ever becomes a Christian in this church unless they go through a divorce or they get cancer or their children get in really big trouble or they lose their job. 
Nobody ever becomes a Christian unless their lives start to fall apart. What does that mean? It means until we recognize our desperation, the gospel will never really feel that sweet to us. It might feel like we might be able to get ourselves to a place intellectually where we're like, yeah, Jesus died on my behalf. That sounds okay. That's, that's pretty okay. Yeah, I'll assent to that. But it doesn't stun us. It doesn't sound like great news. That's why Jesus, when he says things, they sound absurd to us. Um, when Jesus says things like, you know, it's really hard for the comfortable to enter heaven. What is he saying? Doesn't God let like comfortable people into heaven? Of course God lets comfortable people into heaven. The problem is that people who are comfortable and affluent never go, Oh God, I need you. We go, Oh God, would you please help? Until we recognize our desperation, the gospel will never be that sweet. But the truth is that Jesus didn't come to help you. He came to ransom you. He came to buy you back. He's saying that you are enslaved to sin and death. You are taken captive. The life that you think you're living is a life of slavery. And yet Jesus says, I have come to be your ransom. I have come to buy your freedom. And so Jesus lives a perfect life. He had to earn the life uh, that was required of us. He earned the right to buy us by living a perfect life. And then on the cross, he exchanges places with us. And so on the cross, Jesus receives the displeasure, the wrath, the scorn of God because Jesus is paying for your sin and my sin. On the cross, Jesus exchanges places with us. He buys our freedom by paying for it with his own life. And that means that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your record of failure, but he sees instead Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. What that means is this, when God evaluates you, when God evaluates you, he evaluates you on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of what you've done. And that is stunningly good news. And because it's such good news, you can actually be honest about what a mess you are, what a mess I am. It's only when we recognize that Jesus has ransomed us that we can actually be honest about who we are. And when we're honest about who we are and we see the, the price that he paid for us, then we can be humble because we're incredibly grateful. When you see that Jesus is your ransom, it will change your life forever. During the English Civil War, uh, Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector of England, and he, uh, in the course of you know battle, one day captured a traitor, uh, a, a, a man, a young man who had betrayed his uh, his side, and uh, Cromwell and his army captured this man, and um, Cromwell sentenced him to be executed that night. Uh, when the church bell rang at sundown, signaling the curfew. And it's particularly, it was particularly tragic. Of course, this is always tragic. Um, 
civil war is always tragic, but it was particularly tragic in this case because this young man was engaged to be married. And so that evening, uh, the scene was set and uh, the army was there and this young man was there ready to be executed. And as the sun set and the light faded, the bell did not ring. And after a certain amount of time, Oliver Cromwell sent somebody to go investigate and see what happened. And this soldier went to a, the church where they discovered that the church sexton was old and deaf and he had gone to the church and pulled on the bell and gone home. And because he was deaf, he didn't know that that young man's fiance had climbed up into the tower and up into the belfry and wrapped her body around the cast iron clapper of the bell. And so when the sexton pulled the rope, it swung and she absorbed the blows of that bell in her body. And the soldier brought her back to Lord Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell said to her, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. And that is a picture of ransom, of what has been done for you. See, Jesus doesn't come to offer you help. He is your Lord and Savior who paid the price of your freedom in his body. In his body. And if you know that and understand that, then, only then, can you actually seek true greatness. <laughs> I mean, think about what that marriage looks like forever, right? Like, will you do the dishes? Of course. <laughs> Anything you ask, dear. I'm so profoundly humble. You have bought my life with your body. That's what Jesus has done for you. And that is the motivation. Only if you know Jesus as the one who bought your life with his, will you be both humbled and emboldened to live a life of greatness, of humility and service to others. Okay, so what would that actually look like? Here's the problem. I said this at the beginning. We are really bad at knowing what will make us happy. Um, the problem is that we tend to be fairly successful. <laughs> we tend to be fairly good at what we do. And yet, um, sociologists and psychologists um, who, who study these things have... Uh, coined this phrase uh, they, they called the hedonic treadmill. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. And they say to live a life where we are motivated by our own happiness is like getting on a treadmill that just goes up a little faster, a little faster, a little faster. And this is why it always feels like we need a little bit more and happiness is just a little bit further down the road. Because the more successful we are, the more we need to actually feel happy. And when we read the Bible and we hear Jesus say things like, if you want to live a great life, serve others, we think, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, somebody should do that, right? Like, it'd be great if somebody would go and do that. 
like preferably my wife and my children, take up the serve other people thing. Um, what if, um, well, let me say this first. Um, I read this, Donald Miller is, a, is an author and a, like apparently a business promoter now, but um, he, he said this. He said, many of us has found, have found that our stuff has made life more meaningless. We've forgotten that it is the great story that has to involve difficult, sorry, I messed that up. <laughs> what we've forgotten is that every great story has to involve a difficult ambition and must then travel through the land of conflict. The best stories have their protagonists wondering if they are going to make it. And what scripture teaches us then is that God will be with us in that place and will give us the strength to endure a hard thing. When we watch the news, when we read about conflict and suffering, and we grieve over all of this, but when we go to the movies, we want more of it. We want more conflict. Somehow we realize that great stories are told in conflict, but we are unwilling to remember the, great, uh, the potential greatness of the story that we are actually in. And so when suffering happens to us, we think God is unjust when he is actually the master storyteller. And so what I want to finish with is encouraging you to live in the tension of that reality. I'm not asking you to look for ways to suffer. I'm just asking you to stop trying so hard to avoid it. Like, you don't need to be stupid. <laughs> suffering will find you. Just stop trying to run away from it. Because we're really bad at predict, predict, predicting what will make us happy. And most of us think that what will be, make us happy is 25% more and six months down the road. What if those of us that call ourselves Christians, if those of us who say that we are followers of Jesus, actually took Jesus' word at face value? Because we are really bad at predicting what is going to make us happy. And Jesus is telling us right here, if you want to be great, here's the formula. Notice what Jesus is not doing. He is not saying, I want you to follow me and you are going to live a kind of average life that is going to be kind of boring and you're going to be filled with regret over everything you missed out on. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you want to be great, this is how to do it. I will give you the secret. You can become a great person by serving others. That's why I came. I came to change you, to serve you, to give my life up for you, and to change you into the kind of person who is humble, who doesn't gloat over nothings, but lives a truly great life. So what would that look like? There are all kinds of stories I could tell of practical examples, but um, I want to finish by telling, I've been reading this book called Gospel Patrons, which was basically a book about uh, stories of businessmen who did uh, great things for the kingdom of God. And uh, one of the stories in um, this book is the story of uh, William Tyndale and a man named Humphrey Monmouth must have the most English name ever. And um, they lived in the 1500s in England, and William Tyndale was a pastor in London. 
And um, at that time, the, they, the Bible only existed in Latin. It was illegal uh, to translate the Bible into English. And yet William Tyndale, uh, his heart was broken. Over looking at um, his country and seeing so few people who had access to the word of God and the riches of his grace. And um, he said, from Oxford to London, from country chapels to city churches, I've seen that men are ignorant of God's word. The Latin stifles the faith of our land. Most people only know only a few words of it, including the pastors, and those who do use it as a power play to hawk God's grace and fatten their own pocketbooks. And so he proposed to translate the Bible into English. He said, and the king opposed him, and William Tyndale famously said, I'm not going to get the quote right, but he said, if God grants me enough years, I would make it so that the boy who plows uh, the field would know more of the word of God than the king. But it was illegal to translate the Bible into English. And yet through God's providence, William Tyndale met a man named Henry Monmouth who was a uh, leading cloth merchant a wealthy merchant from London's east side. And in God's providence, these two men formed a partnership and Monmouth became the patron of uh, William Tyndale's Bible translation. And uh, Monmouth was able to smuggle Tyndale out of the country to safety on the continent uh, when things got really bad. And he was able to fund um, his work of Bible translation he was able to use his merchants to smuggle English New Testaments back into England. Until finally, after 16 years of partnership between these two men, in 1536, William Tyndale was executed for the crime of translating the Bible into English. And yet when Humphrey Monmouth read of those events in the newspaper. He said, you did it, William. And then he said, actually, we did it. That is an incredible story of this businessman whose name you have never heard and whose name you will forget by this afternoon who saw what God had given him not as a way to live a comfortable, happy life, not to exclude himself from difficulty, but to use the gifts that God had given him to serve others in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And I just want to close with this challenge. William Tyndale and Humphrey Monmouth lived in a country where nobody could read the Bible in their own language. You and I live in a country where many most of us have multiple copies of the Bible. Where our friends and our neighbors know many of the words of the Bible but have no idea what it means. What if God is calling us to give up on doing impressive things for ourselves so that in service to our friends and neighbors and coworkers, we could actually do something great for Jesus? Not to make our own names great. But because Jesus truly is the one who is great. 
And if we've caught a glimpse of who he is and we've seen that he is our ransom, he will change us into people who give up our comforts in order to follow him into true greatness. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for just a bit of the faith um, that many of these people uh, had. Um, God, we might leave this place inspired and yet real life sets in and we have the ability, many of us, to be very comfortable God, would you uh, make your presence known in our lives? Would you help us to uh, have enough of the taste of the gospel to be honest with us about who we really are, that, God, I'm a mess, we are rotten, and yet Jesus has paid the price in his body to set us free. Would you change us? Would you make us people who are great because you are truly great? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.